Hugo Bowne Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. I am super excited to be speaking with Catherine Jarmel about privacy and security in data science and machine learning, and also to celebrate Catherine's new book, Practical Data Privacy. Catherine is a principal data scientist at ThoughtWorks, focusing on privacy, ethics, and security for data science workflows. Catherine has held numerous roles in large companies and startups in the US and Germany, implementing data processing and machine learning systems with a focus on a lot of wonderful things, such as reliability, testability, privacy, and security. Today, we'll be talking about what data privacy and security are, what they aren't, and the differences between them, hopefully dispelling common misconceptions along the way. We'll also talk about why you should care about them. Hint, the answers will involve regulatory, ethical, risk, and organizational concerns. We'll also dive deep into data governance, anonymization techniques, and privacy and data pipelines, as well as privacy attacks. We'll also jump into the state of the art in privacy-aware machine learning and data science, including federated learning. On top of this, we'll also jump into what you need to know about the current state of regulation, including GDPR and CCPA. We'll also be giving away five copies of Catherine's new book. To be in the running for a copy, all you need to do is complete a short survey, which I've linked to in the show notes. Now, a bit of bookkeeping before we jump in. I'd honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. It would also be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice, and if you like it, do write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. Also, this episode was recorded as a YouTube live stream, so when we occasionally refer to people commenting in the chat, that's what we're on about. We plan to have many such more live streams, and you can subscribe to our channel to keep up to date. The link's in the show notes. I'm very excited to be doing another live stream on August 24 with Chris Wiggins, an associate professor of applied mathematics at Columbia University and the New York Times chief data scientist, and Matthew L. Jones, a professor of history at Princeton University and former Guggenheim Fellow. We'll discuss their new book, How Data Happened, and the past, present, and future of data science, machine learning, and AI. DJ Patel, former US chief data scientist, said of the book, this is the first comprehensive look at the history of data and how power has played a critical role in shaping the history. It's a must read for any data scientist about how we got here and what we need to do to ensure that data works for everyone, end quote. If you're a data scientist, machine learning engineer, or work with data in any way, it's increasingly important to know more about the history and future of the work that you do and understand how your work impacts society and the world. So I've included a link in the show notes that you can use to sign up to the live stream for free. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson, and welcome Two vanishing gradients. really excited to get into all of these things. But before that, I thought maybe, Catherine, 
writing a, you know, I'm writing a book at the moment and it's a real serious thing to do, right? So there must have been some pretty serious reasons to spend so much time doing this. So I'd like to know maybe a bit about the book and and why, why you wrote this book in particular. Because I know there are a hundred books that you could write. Yes. Yine, probably a little bit. Yes, I'd know. But why did I write this book? So so first off, I had the wonderful experience that O'Reilly called me and asked me to write this book, which for those of you that know, the proposal process is not often the case. And to me, that was also a significant moment in recognizing the desire for a book like this, because I think there's probably a lot of people that could have written this book. O'Reilly just knew me from prior work. So I I was lucky in the selection chance there. But I think that what it showed me is that there's a desire to learn about data privacy from a technical perspective that maybe, I mean, Hugo, you and I have chatted many times for many years about privacy. Mm. And sometimes let's just say the appetite was maybe a little bit less. (laughs) So there's definitely been conversations that I've had throughout the years with data scientists and machine learning folks who were not interested in privacy. In fact, were actively, let's say, resentful at the the presence of privacy as a topic in the room. And so this, when O'Reilly gave me a call, it to me was a mental shift that, okay, this is a topic now that even from a popular technology point of view is becoming more important. And when I first got into technical privacy, the way that you learned it was either you became a PhD in one of the technologies or you became minimally, you did your master's work in cryptography or indifferent to privacy or one of these concepts. And that wasn't an option for me. I was already working in industry. I wasn't going to go back Mm. to school. Or you spend a lot of time like wafting through research and trying to teach yourself and figuring it out as you go. And I'm all for self-learning, but let's just say it was a rough curve there for a few years of like having to learn all of all of this stuff. And what what I said in the uh, what I say in the preface and what I'll continue saying is I wrote this book for people that want to learn all the stuff that I had to do the hard way for six years learning so that there's shortcuts and the book isn't going to automatically give you everything I know or everything everybody in the field knows. Absolutely, but by no means. But I think it's a nice introduction to the field of technical privacy and in using the tools and technologies that are available now to do more advanced privacy than maybe your average you know, what you're doing today, whatever it is that you're doing today. And I think that the cool thing is a lot of the tech has improved significantly in the past five to 10 years. And that means like you can do cool stuff. You can do crypto and data science at the same time. You can do differential privacy at scale. These are real things. You can do federated learning. These are real things that are available now, which provide a lot better privacy guarantees for folks. I hope that people are inspired and want to want to use and deploy these systems more. That's, I guess, Absolutely. the goal. Yeah, fantastic. And thank you for, I mean, as you know, one of the reasons I, I, I do this podcast is there's a lot of, there is a lot of education around data science, machine learning and AI, as we call it now, as, as we know. But a lot of, you know, a lot of the resources don't necessarily speak to important things such as, such as these aspects of all the work we do. So hearing, hearing from the experts, in this format, as such as yourself, is super important. So thank you for like going to the frontier 
and <laughs> doing the work and, and reporting, re- reporting back. Hello. <laughs> exactly. Is exactly. it on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, there was a, there was an interview, of course, years ago with Philip K. Dick, where somebody asked him about his fiction, and he said, "Well, it's kind of fiction, but everything I write about, I've been to these these places, and I'm really just reporting back from the frontiers of consciousness." There you what go. That's, for wow. what that's worth. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're a slightly safer version of, of yeah, PKD. Yeah, much you know safer. <laughs> so w- what is data privacy? I mean, we all have a sense of what privacy means and what data are, but what what is is privacy and tech? You, you've used the term technical privacy. What what are these things? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the beautiful thing about privacy work, and I'm I think that we have some folks in the room who also work in privacy. So I'd be I'd be happy to also have folks in chat share how you Please. view data privacy. But the beautiful thing is like it's a cultural, it's a personal, it's a political, it's a legal, and it's a technical field. So there's no lack of of multidisciplinary and cross-disciplinary interaction in the field of privacy, which is why I think for me personally, why it's so interesting, because the definition of data privacy would be lacking if you didn't include the social and cultural aspects. So how you and I view privacy is going to be based on where we grew up, maybe our family values, maybe religious beliefs or political beliefs that we hold also our personal value systems or individual desire of what we think is private or not private, what we'd like to share widely, what we'd like to share in more closed circles, how we present ourselves in the world is an aspect of privacy, how we can change how we present ourselves is an access is, you know, an an element of privacy. And then of course we have the political and the legal definitions, right, which have their own implications. And can vary a lot depending on where you live. So your access to privacy as a legal right and as a human right can vary greatly depending on who you are, where you live, what your political beliefs are, and what your access to those types of power systems are. And that's a huge part of privacy. And I think an under, under talked about one in technical circles. So there's there's some sections of the book that focus on that. And then, of course, there's technical privacy, and that's the field that that I work in. That's the main focus of the book. And that's how do we actually take these social, cultural, political, individual, and legal concepts, and how do we implement them in technical systems? And that's a non-trivial problem. So we have privacy-enhancing technologies. We have privacy-preserving technologies. Those are all words to describe the types of tech that we might use. But there's also elements that I, I talk about in the book that's about user interface design. That's about consent. That's about adding, let's say, a layer for the human involved, the person involved to express what is their desire for privacy in this space and how we as data folks can then take those requests and preferences and maybe also work with designers, work with product folks to better define what privacy we want to offer for the people that use our services or our products and so forth. And and then we can use cool technical stuff to implement those and to make those more real. Cool. I like the idea of UI and product being and UX and product being involved because where, where my mind goes is there's also a big difference between consent and informed consent and, and product can play a huge, huge role in that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely systems that you can design that employ privacy technology that are not privacy enhancing by any humanistic definition of privacy. Mm. So just employing privacy technology without actually talking with your users and without communicating with your users, I don't think is a viable solution for privacy in the long run either. And I think similar to greenwashing, there's probably some privacy washing that happens as well in saying, oh, we sprinkled differential privacy on it. Now it's anonymized. Let's move forward. And I think that can be a dangerous trap to fall into Mm. is to not talk with users, is to not inform yourself. What is actually like, how are people fathoming what's happening when they interact with this service and how their data is being used? And I think we could be do a lot with more transparent communication and also getting user requests. And I think that's a huge bonus for companies that want to do data a bit differently with more privacy built in is you could actually talk with users, you could make interfaces so they can communicate their requests. You could regularly chat with them, user research, and you could actually offer like a quite competitive alternative by then taking those requests and implementing them in a real way. That yeah. doesn't that doesn't sound scalable to me, Catherine. <laughs> my my VC backers and LPs would not be happy with that. You're right, and I do something with thinking about kind of like sprinkling on differential privacy. It, it does f- feel like a a similar cynical approach to saying, "Oh, but you signed the terms of service, or you click this this button where you know you print these things out, and it's going to be a thousand pages." And I don't know if if you recall this, there was an NLP, a natural language processing analysis of terms of service of a lot of tech companies mm-hmm. terms of service mm-hmm. and it showed that for some like reasonable definition of complexity or complicatedness like a lot of them were more complicated than Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason in German mm-hmm. or something along mm-hmm. along those lines so yeah yeah, yeah. that's um, a so some of the research around that has showed that GDPR has actually had a, a significant impact on the Readability, readability is that a word yeah, in English? It is. <laughs> Thank you. Readability of of privacy policies. So that was a big goal of GDPR, but I still come across one sometimes where even as a privacy professional, I have to double read or triple read or email the privacy team. So there's usually a, a link to email the privacy team. Sometimes they write back. So mm. <laughs> can recommend if you have Amazing. questions about using a service, you can always email the privacy team and and see if they can answer your questions. We've also just been joined by Michelle, who's joining from Valencia in Spain. And the Um, reason I'm giving Michelle a shout out is Michelle works in marketing, but has always worked in data analytics companies. So it was eager to hear more. And I, I actually, the reason I'd wanted to be explicit about that is, as you know, I've worked in marketing on and off and developer relations and content and, and this this type of stuff. And there's a myth that part of our bread and butter of mar- as marketers involves perhaps being less respectful of of privacy. But the types of techniques that we're going to dis- like, it, it, it's really nice to know what what the open rate of an email I send is, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's actually Absolutely. helpful. And to be able to yeah. test those things. Do I need individual user user level data to get that information? The answer, of course, is no, but a lot of 
providers such as MailChimp do provide all of that information, right? Um, Absolutely, so and co- and collect to- it. And you can't you can't actually opt into an anonymized version, or you can't opt into. I want to see aggregates over this period of time, or I Absolutely. want to offer people a way to say, "I'd like to subscribe, but I want to opt out of open email." reporting. So like there's all these things. I mean, that's you can't control that as a marketer, but it's interesting if more marketers, I think, ask for some of these things from the products that are available, that would be helpful. But also I think marketing is really exciting part of privacy technology Mm. because marketing has been one of the hardest hit as far as privacy regulation. And I think that for that reason, I've had like really amazing conversations with marketers in the past few years about rethinking some of the ways that marketing works. And I think that particularly folks that are trying to live outside of, let's say, the largest ad ecosystems, there's a lot of really cool direct marketing that you can do that's also privacy preserving that starts to pull user eyeballs away from the traditional ad networks. And that might also be an exciting thing from just a humanity and diversity of the marketplace point of view. Fascinating. So before we dive in too deep, I'm interested in why should data professionals, and by that, I mean, data scientists, data engineers, machine learning engineers, platform engineers, data analysts who like whatever this like big ecosystem of people working, increasingly working technically with data, why should they? So they've got a job to do. They need to pay the bills as well and put a roof over their head, their families, Absolutely. all of these things. Probably burning out once a year. What? Like why? So given this context of your like, but you know, your average not. person in well, no, your average person of what we call in late capitalism. But I, I think that's not cynical enough. I think if you think this is late, you wait fifty years. But. When people have so much on on their mind, why should data professionals care about privacy in terms of the work they do? Yeah, I mean, I think if you already work in a regulatory space, so I I heard maybe we have some folks from finance here, Mm. maybe we have folks from, from healthcare or life sciences, you probably already have to care about privacy, whether you you'd like to or not. And I think that a lot of times when we think about, so I think a lot of data science people join data science because they're like, okay, cool math or statistical problems, fairly decent pay, at least reasonably for, for the past 10 years. We'll see how the field changes. And maybe I get to work on cool data problems. And I meet a lot of folks that after a few years in data science and machine learning kind of get burned out because they're like, I don't want to just build recommender systems for my whole life or I don't want to optimize, you know, micro optimize this interface or that interface because it's just not that rewarding. And so I think one of the reasons maybe to be interested in data privacy is I think the impact of your work when you're in when you're employing data privacy or security in machine learning and data science is not only going to actively positively benefit the users so particularly going from zero to anything, this is what I want to say is like the book has a lot of cool stuff and, and not every organization is ready for all the ideas in the book. That's okay. But if you're literally, if you're moving anywhere from zero privacy towards a little bit more, 
you are actively contributing to the human benefit of the systems that you work with. And I think there's a non-trivial amount of people in data science and machine learning that are hoping that their work benefits humans. And maybe your work actively does, and that's fine, and you're just interested in privacy because it's a cool technical area, that's fine too. But also, if you're kind of lost in data science and machine learning right now, and you'd like to find more purpose, I think that data privacy can offer some of that. And that's, you know, I think a, a non-zero number of people in data science. And if you don't, if you don't care and like you just want to have one person on the team know this stuff, it doesn't have to be for you either. I don't think that's mm. probably the people listening to this, but you're going to meet resistance from other data science folks that don't want to hear about privacy. That's okay too. I don't think everybody needs to become you know, focused on this field. But I think there should hopefully be enough of a critical mass of folks who are that the conversation can be more human rights oriented and, and privacy, at least from a European perspective, is a fundamental human right. Absolutely. Perhaps people who are joining the live stream, are, of course, are, are more interested, but a lot of people who listen to the podcast listen to it for a variety of reasons. So ah, I may not have okay. thought too much about, <laughs> about, about these, these things as well. So one thing I'm hearing... I think this is very important is that there are a bunch of industries, finance and health probably being certain types of health being the most obvious, which are pretty significantly regulated. And it's part of your job, just as, you know, using a machine learning, or learning orchestrator for a machine learning engineer is part of what you, your daily bread and butter, what pays the bills, yeah. actually knowing about privacy and building privacy into your systems. The point is it, it impacts revenue, <laughs> revenue, right? And your Absolutely. ability to to do what what you do, so that's incredibly important. I do think another point you made around it not being binary that you can introduce certain parts of privacy at diff different points. A, a spectrum of privacy is incredibly in important, so people can bring certain certain amount of these things to to their organizations and and their work. Another thing you hinted at is that people are in this space because. They're interested in the math and the data and the stats and all, all of that stuff. There's actually a lot of interesting math and data and stat stuff in all of the privacy oh, stuff. Absolutely. Which, absolutely. Which, which we'll get to when we, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, differential privacy or federated learning or these types of things, it's actually really exciting, interesting technical, technical space, right? It's hard um, problems. <laughs> something you hinted at, I think that. I think maybe you didn't push on too much is an idea of responsibility and like societal ethical concerns, like perhaps even build things that you'd be happy for your children to use. I mean, those weren't your your words at all, but that's where my mind goes. And I, I'm very mindful of not telling people like you need to be responsible. I don't think that has ever served anyone well is telling people you have to do this. But there is a sense that particularly in in a space which a lot of the capital has come in through tech and it has been, a lot of the capital has been built on lack of privacy, even as, as a foundational aspect, and that being harnessed or exploited, depending on what perspective you want to take. These conversations now also perform almost like a responsible corrective function to what we've seen in, in our space over the past decade. Mm -hmm. Is that safe mm -hmm. to say? Yeah, I mean, also, like, I think just from the, you want your kids to use it, like, I think people want to be proud of their work. Mm. And I think that that people want to feel pride. They want to go home and tell their, their family and friends about 
what they're working on and and be super excited about it, right? So I think that the field of privacy and the multidisciplinary aspects of privacy has shown me that privacy is a really friendly field and a really, in a lot of ways, open field. And therefore, I think regardless of where your avenues of in the privacy field go, I think it can be work that you can be proud of, that you can be excited about. So we mentioned finance and health. Which industries are data privacy most important in and, and why? So I would argue that privacy is a, has a growing importance in the field of marketing, even more mm. so than health and finance. So health and finance have been regulated for a long time. Folks there tend to have to know a lot of the regulatory aspects because of the way that privacy regulation is changing worldwide. So obviously, if you operate in Europe, you probably have had in the past you know, five years of GDPR had to learn a bit about privacy. You know, I think that more and more places will pass privacy regulations. So China passed a privacy regulation two years ago, I believe, or a year and a half ago that went into effect last year. There's the Brazil version of GDPR, essentially, with a lot of similarities. And now California will be the first to have a regulatory agency in the U.S., And as we saw, or as if you follow the field closely, a few weeks ago, the FTC started enforcing fines for privacy Mm. violations and data security violations. And so, like, we're in this shifting regulatory space. So I think more and more data jobs will be impacted by privacy. But with a lot of these regulations, what they're actively targeting is third-party data sharing. And third-party data sharing often first hits marketing or companies that work in the space of partnerships, marketing, and so forth. And so I think that there's going to need to be a lot of creative thinking and also the <clears throat> leveraging of privacy technology and new types of thinking through consent flows that allows folks to kind of shift the business. And so I think there will be growing. I think there's a non-trivial amount of users. We see that with the Apple privacy is iPhone and we can debate what how much Apple does, how much Apple doesn't, but they have invested significant amount of time and resources and research into privacy technologies. And I think they see it as a competitive advantage. And so I think there's also a space for companies to start to think, is privacy a competitive advantage that we'd like to offer? Is that some sort sort of differentiator between us and our competition? And I think that's probably also going to be a growing part of products. Of course, Apple's marketing team clearly considers it competitive advantage, but they're right in in a lot of ways because they, I mean, well, they still sell hardware. I love the idea that marketing is one of the biggest places we're going to see seeing a, a delta particularly because that impacts ev- everyone, right? Mm-hmm. So that means this conversation is 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 highly relevant for everyone. I'm, I'd, I want to jump into technical privacy and, and, and think through, reason through some of the most important technical aspects. I do, we've talked about Apple, right? So mm-hmm. if things they've done is a, a, a good play, did differential privacy, was that developed yeah. significantly at Apple? They definitely have a differential privacy team. So differential privacy as a concept was first actually introduced by Cynthia Dwork at Microsoft Research some time back now. And she worked with Aaron Roth and a few other folks in the space on developing out kind of some of the first technically feasible 
things of differential privacy. A little known fact is some of the first in algorithmic foundations of differential privacy, which is her and Roth's small book on the concept, mm-hmm. which is free, freely available online. We can share a link later. Right. What's it called? I'm actually going to share it right Algor- now. Algorithmic foundations of differential privacy, I believe is the right. name. Some of the, it's really cool because they both all also worked in machine learning at the time. And this is like not today's AI, it's not deep learning. It's, uh, I think they implemented a differentially private algorithm for an a- SVN or something like this. Anyways, SVM. And, and I think, anyways, the point is, is that there's a chapter. Isn't that a bit cheeky that, because nobody really focus, uses support vector machines? But I think, but back then, I think people did, yeah, right? Yeah. Thank yeah. You're right yeah. <laughs> like, anyways. But it's kind of cool because one of the chapters is about machine learning and it's kind of like surprising that you're reading about differential privacy and all of a sudden you're you're looking through some some algorithms to optimize machine learning with differential privacy. But back to Apple, they do have a differential privacy team. They also were one of the first to publish open research on differential privacy in production systems mm. because they publish a really cool paper which I will have to, I don't remember the name, maybe differential privacy at scale or something like this. And they talked about the fact that they were having problems with emoji word prediction. Well, okay, emojis aren't words, but they were having problems with emoji prediction on their keyboards. And they were just not doing well on emoji prediction. And they had a feeling that emoji use was different across different languages. So they wanted to collect some statistics based on the default language or the native language of your keyboard if you used emojis differently. And they found there was divergence amongst languages. In fact, one of the best the best parts of the paper is they, they talk about French versus English. And in French, they use the, or at least in this point in time, it might be different today, but in French, they use the, the kissy emoji as the third most popular emoji. Mm. And in English, they use the loudly crying, sobbing face as the third most popular. And I like to make the joke, this is a political difference based on my experience in Europe Mm. and the US. But it's really cool because they actually found, so they collected statistics differentially private from the phone, which means they add, they perform the differential privacy mechanism on the phone which we can talk about more in depth. Mm-hmm. And that means that when they send the results to the aggregator, they then go through an ingester step where they drop device information, device identifiers, IPs, and so forth. And then they go to an internal aggregator. And that is what the data analytics team or the products team use. Also the data science team, presumably in this case, to view this. And that's an implementation of what we call local differential privacy, which means it happens at the user level, so at the individual contributor level to the data. And that's not so common. You can really only do that properly at at massive scale. Mm -hmm. And this is because you're adding noise, you're adding error to your data. And the only way, as we know as data scientists, that one can compensate for this error is to have enough information that the error you can essentially the error will fall away with repeated analysis. This is one thing we got to work on my Bayesian notebook on this. I Absolutely. Can we just step back a bit and remind yeah. everyone what what challenge yeah. we're trying to solve with differential okay, privacy? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I, I, I dove in and asked the specific question. <laughs> yeah. first, so. so differential privacy allows us 
um, from a technical point of view to uh, fundamentally guarantee that a person has what we might, from a legal concept, define as plausible deniability. So what we want is we want people to participate. We want them to send data or we want to collect data. But we would like to hold a particular probability bounds on whether, and this is the formulation of differential privacy as a problem, is actually a probability bounds problem that allows us to say the information that or the probability that I can guess whether you're in the data before you can contribute and after mm. you contribute is held within a particular bounds to each other and those small bounds that is usually held in what we call epsilon or depending on the formulation might be held in other parameters but it is essentially a parametized part and something that you tune when you think about differential privacy is no. how large or small do you want these bounds to be no. and we can think of it essentially as the information gain problem and mm. how we want to limit the amount of information gain on an individual level, but we want to have the information gain high enough at a collective level that we can still learn something. And this is one of the cool problems and why I think for folks that are interested in statistical reasoning and probabilistic reasoning like yourself, I think like are drawn to these problems because it's like, oh, it's a fun math problem and it's mm. kind of a cool concept that a person can participate, but still could say, oh, that particular answer wasn't mine, or that's yeah. not actually me. And I think that that's like from a legal point of view, that's important too. And so a lot of people, a lot of lawyers also, and I don't know if we have lawyers in the chat, I'd be happy to hear your thoughts, but a lot of lawyers, not a lawyer, not legal advice, say that differential privacy is potentially the gold standard of anonymization from a legal point of view. And so if you anonymize data, you also often can use data outside of the regulatory confines. So particularly with a, with a regulation like GDPR, with many of the other privacy regulations, it says if you anonymize data, it falls outside of the bounds of this regulation. So people right. are very interested in differential privacy because there's some people interested in public release. So they want to release data publicly and they want to do it safely. So the U.S. Census used the library that I review in the books, Tumult Analytics, as part mm -hmm. of their data release in the last census. And Wikipedia just announced their latest data release, which also uses Tumult Analytics. And I think for people in public release space, it's exciting because you want to make sure that the data is as safe as possible, that no single person can be singled out using your data release or that if so, the amount of information that that person leaks is quite small. And then from a in industry point of view, it's quite exciting because you can use data outside of the normal processing and retention periods that you have in a regulatory aspect. And when we think about things like machine learning, or when we think about things like right to deletion and so forth, and we want to have long-term reporting, we need to also think about how we implement actual anonymization and systems. And I would argue anonymization by default doesn't exist. If we collect information, like we can never guarantee that, that that information doesn't leak some amount of information about the participants, right? 
But differential privacy allows us to bound that information within a particular realm and therefore to tune it for particular use cases or to think about it and to define policies and standards across an organization that follow, let's say, the the best technical ways that we know to try to Mm. provide something close to anonymization. And so this epsilon then, and I'm thinking my probabilistic head tends to go in these directions, that it's really with how much confidence can we say something about a population and feel how much confidence can we say that and have confidence in the fact that each individual's anonymity will be preserved while still being able to say this about the population? Indeed. I mean, so the epsilon accounts for the bounds that we're trying to hold, but it also accounts there for some of the how we sample essentially noise and we when we sample noise, so we sample a noisy value of a true number. So there's a few things that happen just to fully describe a differentially private mechanism so people know. You have data that's coming in, right? And I'll I'll describe centralized differential privacy. So this isn't local, this is centralized. So you have a database full of users and so forth. You want to, let's say, perform some sort of query. You want to perform some sort of some or other operation, depending on the operation, can get complicated. Read the book. But you want to do that. Let's presume that you've you've thought through the results that you want to collect. You've then also chosen or parameterized your epsilon or maybe your epsilon and delta or maybe your alpha, whatever it is, depending on which type of differential privacy you're using because there's many flavors. And then... What you're going, but let's just use epsilon. Let's be strict. Let's just use epsilon. Then what you're going to do is first you're going to actually bound the individual contributions. So let's say, let's take ages and let's say that you presume that the ages of the participants in your survey are between 13 and 22. Because you're doing mm-hmm. a, a survey a survey for young folks or folks looking at a high school and university or something like this, right? So let's say you bound that. Let's say you have some some people that are participating who are actually 12 or some people who are participating who are actually 25. You actually end up cutting those folks so they fit the range that you expect. So this obviously inserts some form of error and also mm-hmm. removes outliers, which we can think about outliers having extreme privacy risk. In mm, because absolutely. an extreme information leakage compared to their counterparts, then at that point in time, you can perform the operation and you will sample from a particular distribution that has error. So you will sample either from a Gaussian distribution or a normal distribution. There's numerous other distributions you can sample from, but for data science, Gaussian obviously works nicely. And therefore, the the mean of your distribution will be the true answer. And so you'll be sampling near your true answer, but you also have a chance to sample further away from your true answer. Mm -hmm. And if you sample further away from the true answer, obviously, then you have some amount of error. However, one thing, Hugo, I know you've thought about a lot that I would love to point out in this case and hear your thoughts is, what does it mean to have ground truth data? And is any of the data that we collect, particularly when we're asking users to insert forms, how much of that data is true? How much of the data already has some amount of error? And can we not also just presume that all data that we collect has some amount of error by default, by the measurements that we propose and 
differential sure. privacy explicitly inserts error too as as part of this process. Yeah, great. That was a wonderful technical dive into into differential privacy. That's amazing. I mean, there are there are so many other ways we could go, but I do think saying a bit about other techniques. We've kind of talked about anonymization and the fact that perhaps it isn't possible. So maybe in, I suppose the types of things talking around are anonymization, pseudo anonymization, encrypted communication, federated data science. So maybe a primer on a variety of different. I suppose, technical approaches and what problems they solve that people may find useful and can find out more about in your book. Yes, yeah. So obviously, there's a few chapters on differential privacy. There's also ways to to think about differential privacy in, in a tensorized or vectorized space. So there's also differential privacy for machine learning. So in every chapter, just by the way, there's like theory at the beginning, a little bit of like playing with the concepts in Jupyter Notebooks and thinking through like, how do these right. things work? And then at the end, there's a open source library that's used to implement it. And so... There's a whole repo that goes along with the book. There's some notebooks in the repo that are there just for self-study. They're not actually even covered in the book. So please have a look. My GitHub is KJAM, so you you can see it pinned on, on my GitHub. And if you're curious, like maybe even learning via the notebooks is like a good way to get started. Yeah. I tried to also include some links to cool blogs and other things where you can Amazing. learn more. And we'll include and that then, link in the show notes as well. Awesome. Awesome. And then if you want to, to talk about the other technologies listed in the book, so differential privacy, of course, is a huge one. But then also talk about federated learning or what I also call distributed learning, because I think we can also think about it from just a distributed data storage where we actually don't want data to be released across national boundaries or released mm -hmm. across particular parts of an organization. And so these are like cross-silo distributed learning or cross-silo federated learning is something I've had a lot of exposure to where we don't want... We have two parts of an organization or we have two or three or four organizations that would like to work together on a data problem, but they don't actually want to ship their data to each other, which is great. That's mm. like probably not what we should do. You know? <laughs> Just because it's super dangerous from a security point of view. Totally. And so how can we do machine learning together? How can we do analytics together without shipping all of the data to everybody else all the time? I think it's going to, that could fundamentally change the way that we think through data partnerships and data sharing in general. And I think that is a lot of cool marketing. So you explicitly use a marketing use case in the book for, for some of it to think through, Hey, we're two companies. We want to build a product together. We want to figure out if we have some interesting overlap in our customers. How do we do this in a privacy-preserving way? And how do we track spending across the shared customers that we have to get a view of if there's particular partnership opportunities that we could provide? And you could totally do that using privacy tech, which is pretty exciting. So um, we actually, there was a question yeah. in the chat from Nima. Yeah. And I said, we might get to it. Nima wrote, not sure how much this is relevant when dealing with customer data one might need to be extra careful about accessing sharing PII. The challenge is when you want to work with another organization, but they can't access yes. the data. So how do you? Yes. How do you, so that's exactly yes. what you're speaking to. Exactly. Exactly. So there's two technologies that you can leverage then, and they're both talked about in, in the book. So one is just presenting it as a federated problem. 
And there you might have numerous ways that you select the customers from each group. More on that in a second. But you could even just focus it as a general question and say, hey, for all of your customers, how much did they spend on this particular product category last year? And we'll compare it to ours and then we'll run some federated analysis across those customers. Like, let's say, like maybe looking one level deeper in product categories or looking at some sort of geographic distribution or something like this, you can run those queries in a distributed sense so that the only things that are ever aggregated are the aggregate result. And one could even think of combining differential privacy as part of this. So you have the aggregated result plus or minus some amount of noise, depending on how many participants you have and what guarantees you'd like to do. And this can all, this is all feasibly can happen also using open source technology that's available today. If you want to go one level further, so the, the realm that I used to work in, encrypted learning or also encrypted data analysis is a let's leverage cryptographic protocols that we can use also in open source libraries that you can use. You don't need a cryptographer. Although if you have one, they can also be an exciting resource for you. But cryptographic libraries that are available. So even finding, let's say, the intersection of your customers and the customers on the other side. And let's say you need the real intersection. There's a reason why you need to make sure customer A exists in both company A and company B. If you have a shared identifier, like an email address, or you have another shared identifier that you can use, you can actually compare identifiers in encrypted space and only reveal the matches that are found without ever revealing the other identifiers. Mm. And so this is called private set intersection, and there's a whole section on it in the book. And one of the things you could even do that the book has a, a notebook for, sorry, I feel like now, now I'm marketing. <laughs> Natural. I'm just very excited. Exactly. And actually, I do want to make clear that I've known, been friends with Catherine for a long time, and she's (laughs) not a marketer unless she's really excited about something. And then then I I want to hire you, actually. Yeah, there you go. I'm not even hiring. Uh, (laughs) You've got a job. Take my money. One of the things you can even do is you could remain in encrypted space with this intersection and you can further compute on the data. And so you could even find the joins essentially. And then you could take those joints and further compute the, the math that you need to do, whatever processing you need to do. And then you could return the, the decrypted result to both parties, to one party, to any number of the parties, all parties involved that's a field or that uses protocols in the field that I used to work in of, of encrypted machine learning. And there's a little bit of learning about those protocols, definitely, as well as use cases that are relevant for things like encrypted computation in the book. It's also the longest chapter, probably because I was also super excited. And I think everybody should learn more cryptography. It's like Mm. cool math. It's really cool applications. Like when you think through what we can guarantee in cryptography, especially in combination with techniques like differential privacy, we can give people a lot of control of how their data is used. And I think that that's a pretty cool thing to do. Fascinating. And I, I almost don't want to ask this question. One, because I'm not necessarily interested in buzz terms. Two, I don't know anything really about this type, type of thing. But I, I am interested if you have any thoughts on what quantum cryptography 
could do to the cryptographic space. My understanding is that quantum computers. Everybody could... always asks this question. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm so sorry. I didn't, I wasn't aware of it's that. Like, but... there, there's an FAQ chapter, and it's literally one of the first questions. <laughs> Amazing. And by the way, in, in the table of contents, it's frequently asked questions, but with answers as well. It's not just the questions. Very important. Yeah. yeah exactly. Not just a list of questions <laughs> with, with uh, chat gotcha. GPT responses. <laughs> yeah. So quantum, we often say quantum safe or quantum secure cryptography already exists, is already relevant in a lot of the spaces. And all of the methods that I just listed for you are considered quantum safe. So there's some cryptography that we have problems with when we think about quantum safe, quantum secure. By the way, I'm not a cryptographer. Also, talk to a cryptographer if you need like a state level security advice, please, or even before you think about implementing protocols yourself and so forth. But when we think about quantum safe or quantum secure cryptography, one thing that the book goes through is there's a few different definitions from cryptography of how we evaluate the security of a method. And that security is both from a theoretical point of view. So in theory, in the math, how does it work? And then from a practical point of view. So it's implemented in a library. How did they implement it? And mm -hmm. a lot of the ways that we have to worry about cryptography when we think about quantum secure and quantum safe is crypto systems or cryptography systems. Sorry, I use the term crypto and cryptography interchangeably, but I do not mean cryptocurrency. I mean cryptography when I say crypto. Very good. So, because we don't talk about cryptocurrency yeah, on, on this podcast. Yeah. yeah, this is so, not a cryptocurrency podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, because we believe the, in creating real value. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, crypto I'm, systems are based on what we called hard problems, and the whole security of cryptography is based on how hard is a problem to solve. And so, what you actually have to think about when you think about crypto secure or crypto safe protocols is what hard problem is this based on? And if the hard problem, for example, is based on factorization, this is a known attack vector that quantum computers can use. Mm -hmm. And so you really need to think about like, what's the hard problem? Because there's many systems that are based on other hard problems, like lattice systems, and MPC is based on completely MPC. Sorry, by the way, is multi-party computation, secure multi-party computation, which the book uses, and that's based on entirely different secret sharing problems that are seen as perfectly secure. And so, anyways, if you want to learn about crypto, there's a, a taster in the book. Crypto cryptography. There's a taster in the book, and. There's so much cool stuff to learn if you dip your toe into the field of cryptography, awesome. especially as somebody who likes math. So, yeah. And I, I actually don't know a lot about cryptography, but I did get to be in the same room as an Enigma machine once. <laughs> did you use it? Did you encrypt I didn't, a message? I didn't. No, but it was actually, it was a talk by, I, there's actually a really nice pop science book, an old book, The Code Book by Simon Singh which is a oh, cop cool. science book about, about cryptography. And it was a talk he gave once where he had an Enigma machine with, awesome. with him. And by the way, I appreciate that everyone asks about quantum, quantum computing. That, that is hilarious because I, you know, I've, I've recorded hundreds of podcasts over the past several years and asked dozens of questions in each. So asked thousands of questions and I've never 
had the opportunity to ask a question about, <laughs> about quantum, quantum security. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one thing I did want to talk about is that there are many ways to slice this space. Well, something I appreciate about your book is you kind of go through different layers of the stack from data to pipelines to data science to machine learning. And I do think we do, if we think about like the data science hierarchy of needs, right, which has data collection at the bottom, then pipelines and basic counting, aggregation, summary statistics, then online experimentation. And only then do you get to machine learning, then AI, then maybe generative stuff now at the top, right? We, yeah, this, you know, pyramid of power. What we, <laughs> we do want to start thinking about inserting privacy at every layer, right? Like it isn't only the sexy stuff of doing federated machine learning up up the top, right? It's even thinking about basic, like how do you do that without having proper data governance, for example, at the bottom bottom of the stack, right? So maybe you can tell us a bit about these very foundational aspects of data governance and then maybe building privacy into data pipelines. Absolutely. So, so from, I mean, your organization, wherever you work at, or let's say you even have an ad hoc team, you're you're working together and you want to train, let's say even amongst friends, you want to train or fine-tune your own GPT or something like this. Wild idea. Might be working on it soon. I think mm. we could have a lot, a lot less toxicity in language modeling if people were comfortable sharing their private data. Absolutely. As an idea. I'm also okay, I'm very interested that, in your in because you're you live in Germany. Now, yeah. how you, I mean, and this is slightly tangential, but it's, it's very a cultural thing that chat GPT is like my polite American aunt who's like, oh, I'm so sorry for, you know, whereas I presume like it's a very like absurdly subservient, polite, you know, <laughs> large language model. Whereas a German Are you version, calling Germans impolite? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not calling, I'm, I'm not. I mean, maybe on average from an American perspective, well, but so you, as you know, I worked in Germany for a couple of years, and yeah, yeah. like I, I had a very close German friend who I said one afternoon, "Hey, you want to have dinner tonight?" And he went, "No." Yeah, the honest answer. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "Why not?" He's like, "I just don't want to. Let's do it tomorrow." <laughs> yeah, and yeah. as an Australian, like an Australian would make up an excuse. They'd go, oh, "I got to go and help my mum uh, with something," you know. So, but I, I, I think the point the point remains is that we do have you know like language models coming out of Silicon Valley trained on. English oh, language absolutely. data, and I suppose thinking about NLP more generally trained on web scale data, which is for the most part uh, English language, not representative of a lot of countries, particularly the global south in, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, we've, I mean, we've talked before, and I'm sure that you've, you've hosted folks that talk exclusively on like the, the cultural hegemony and the lack of diversity of these mm. these models and that they often come with an extreme bias towards an American point of view. As an American, I think maybe there's many multiple points of view in the world, many, many, a plethora that are underrepresented or completely missing from a lot of the ways, even that the problem is modeled and the way the data is collected and then the way the data is labeled and the way that all yeah. of this feeds into a knowledge system or an intelligence system. And there's a lot of design choices there that are also also political and that are also have to do with ethics and 
human rights to decisions and these types of things. And to be and clear, so, you, you are an American, but, and yes. I'm going to probably use the wrong term here, but you're an adoptive German as, as well. Like you live in Germany. You live in Germany for the past nine years. Um, exactly. We'll probably it, get a double, double Staatsgehörigkeit. So I will probably get dual citizenship yeah. in the coming years. And yeah. yeah and Germany's a place you feel up, more at home in a lot of ways, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. For a yeah. lot of the reasons stay, we're talking around. I will stay in Germany, presumably for, or I will at least stay in Europe for the rest of my life. That's yeah. the plan. So, yeah, I think the European point of view on human rights, aside from some recent developments like asylum rights changing in Europe, I, I mm -hmm. find extremely upsetting. Also, probably why I will accelerate being able to vote here. Yeah. There's a lot of, but on a fundamental level, there's a lot of things in the European perspective on human rights that I agree with. And for this reason, yeah, I feel I feel at home here. And I think like these models and and these data problems, they should allow people to feel at home using them. And that mm. means that they need to be more diverse. The, the people need to be able to build their own. People need to be able to control and build their own. And back to the original question of data governance, I think data governance is a way to formulate how do people contribute data in a safe and a responsible and in a respectful manner. And data governance at an organization is by default multidisciplinary. It's going to be legal folks. It's going to be the privacy team. It's got to be some business or product folks. And it's got to be the infosec folks. So information security or some sort of security or risk or compliance group. And it's really cool to be involved in data governance because it has these many aspects. And it's very rare, I think, outside of data governance to have all of those people trying to guide and make decisions for the organization on how something is used. And in data governance case, it's the use of the data. And that means there needs to be advocates for the customer. There needs to be advocates for the business. There needs to be advocates for legal and compliance and audit. And there needs to be and, and privacy regulation. And there needs to be advocates for security, data security, as well as increasing amounts of, of people from if there's large amounts of data science, data engineering, and data machine learning or AI or something, then those advocates should also be at the room. And the cool thing about being involved in governance is it's setting the policies or the standards across an entire organization of how this all comes to place. And maybe you yourself, if you've worked as a data engineer or as a data scientist, maybe you've gotten something handed to you, like this came from data governance or this came from compliance, but it's a new policy or new standard. And you've had to read through it and figure out how do I actually do this? <laughs> like, mm. Or read through it, the worst case, read through it and figure out you can't actually do it with the way that the systems today are architected or built. And I think that that's why it's so important to think through the governance aspects of building out the data systems that we have because retrofitting privacy into a system is extremely difficult, if not impossible. And so with building like out an duct entire... Tape to, yeah. To hold up a building. Yeah, it might even be... So let's say you've third-partied your entire platform to cloud native or to some sort of subscriber native, they may or may not even have the knobs that you can turn. Yeah. And then you're having to like figure out in your code, how do you reshape this into a problem you can solve? And that's 
that could be a fun sort of technically challenging, but it could also be frustrating. And so I think having data folks in the room at this governance level and learning how to talk with lawyers can be a superpower. And I, I don't really like to use that term lightly, but can be an extremely useful skill set to learn at an organization because you can save millions of, of monies, whatever your mm. currency is, and you can save a lot of time if you just sometimes can be like one simple change and it's like everything falls into a place. But the people running the data systems have to actually know what's the conversation at that governance level. And there's a whole chapter of the book on like working with legal, working with infosec and understanding policies and regulations for data people so that hopefully you can learn some words. And I'd be very excited to hear input from others who have also successfully navigated these conversations. I think there's a lot to be learned from each other in these aspects. Absolutely. We've just got a, a comment from Sebastian Neubauer who says, you both, I mean, this is lovely. And I, I agree with Catherine's side of it at least, but you both should do a common podcast series just talking about random AI ML topics and fun. I would subscribe to it. <laughs> Hi, so, Sebastian. Do you know Sebastian? Yeah. Great. <laughs> Maybe that's, as my former Belgian colleagues would say, future music for us. So after governance, I think, how should practitioners think about building privacy into, into data pipelines? So data pipelines can be like a super exciting place to build privacy in. So I think data engineering... I've never heard anyone refer to data pipelines, anything about data pipelines as being exciting. So <laughs> No, rude. Very yeah. rude. Because <laughs> I mostly I think, speak with people who want to build models and do feature engineering yeah. and that type of stuff. So, But what creates the features? Well, exactly. Exactly. So if you're doing anything at scale, probably data engineers create the features. And yes. For this reason, I think that data engineering work is kind of the ground layer of a lot of our data systems. So we can also think of like when we think of landing zones or staging zones, we can think about, hey, do we want to add data privacy from you know a raw landing zone to our staging? Or do we want to add data privacy from staging to reporting? Or do we want to actually add data privacy directly in the production reporting systems or let's say from production reporting systems and so forth? And these are like all design choices that you have to make. And then from a data engineering point of view, so so I referenced earlier the Tumult Analytics Library, which mm -hmm. integrates directly with the Spark systems. And I think they're trying, they're working on supporting some other data engineering systems. But you can actually do differential privacy directly in Spark using this. So using Spark data frames and so forth. So if you're curious about that, there's some examples from the book and also in the notebook. If you just want to play around, from the Tumult Analytics Library, there's numerous other libraries. So Google also has a differential privacy library that they co-collaborate with OpenMind on. OpenMind is a learning community for data privacy called Pipeline DP. So you can look at some alternatives. I vastly prefer the Tumult Analytics interface. I think it's a lot more intuitive and easy to use as a data person, but that's my personal opinion. And so you can actually think through different privacy problems at the pipeline layer or at the data engineering layer. But you also, there's another part of the, the chapter in the data engineering chapter, there's a chapter just on data engineering, where you start even just thinking about validation rules and essentially like fitness functions for figuring out is the data arriving or leaking some which way that you cannot, that should not happen, right? So mm. we can think of creating validation that data that shouldn't land 
in a particular zone or shouldn't land in a particular part of a zone to actually validate that that's happening. We could think through encryption of fields and validate that fields are being encrypted. We could think through applying policy at a variety of layers of the data engineering experience of who's allowed to see what and who's allowed to use what data at what purpose. And then from a governance point of view, we have to think through when does data expire? We have to think through how long are we allowed to keep the data that we have for the use cases that we have? And you need to actually, to, uh, at a data engineering level, you have to validate that this policy is actually happening if you want to be, let's say, like fully compliant with whatever laws, or if you want to just also the, have your privacy policy be what's actually happening, right? So mm -hmm. we have to make sure that what we post and what we tell customers is what's really happening. And so that might mean doing massive deletion at scale, which is a non-trivial problem. It's also thinking through use case-based consent requirements. So if we were to do more fine-grained consent collection saying, you can use my data for X, but not Y, or you can use this data with these protections for X and not Y, then this also becomes a data engineering routing problem where when we give access to data or when we route data for particular use cases or tasks, we need to make sure that what we said is true happens. And I think that that's like actually a cool problem and like a cool design problem. And it also makes you start thinking through data in a more federated sense too, because there might be parts of the organization that always need access to all of the data, right? For fraud or something like this. But there might be other parts of the org that you want to offer a realistic data, but you might not want to offer a direct copy of your production database, so to say. And I think Absolutely. that's a cool problem. Yeah. And you mentioned deletion of data. And as we know, in, in Europe, there's a right to deletion under G, GDPR. How do you guarantee deletion? I don't know. How do you guarantee deletion of files on your operating system? I suppose in because it's so easily and I suppose approaching the limit of infinitely reproducible, it isn't actually actually clear. Maybe there you could do it with protections around transferability, these these types of things. Yeah, I mean, so again, I think the right to deletion is one of the most hotly debated rights under GDPR from a technical point of view too, because let's say you have a quite complex at scale architecture where like you might have many partitions or you might even have a cold storage zone or anything like this. The ability for you to even locate, and this is mainly a data governance problem, and, and the fact that the tools that we use from a data point of view have not adequately tracked lineage. Mm -hmm. for probably decades. <laughs> and so I come to you and I say, I would like all my data deleted. How do you actually locate my data? If you don't have strong lineage, if you don't have strong governance, you are probably going to miss it, miss some of my data somewhere, and it won't get deleted. There's just, you know, there's just unfortunately an artifact of the way that we've built out data systems and reporting systems. And particularly if you have numerous dashboards where people export data or this, that, whatever, let's not even get into what people might have on their personal computers or their not well, their yeah, computer, let's, hopefully, let's but get their real, computer, right? Let's, let's get real as well. Like in a lot of organizations, people like send PII in, in, in Slack yeah. on USB sticks if they're in yes. an office, you know. Yes. 
This is like 90% of data breaches that we see is like what we would call shadow IT systems mm. or insider threat where a person is actively motivated to to copy the data and to to share it or to share credentials or something like this, right? This is like most of data breaches, which is why data privacy, implementing appropriate data privacy controls at a deep level yeah. is a huge benefit for security. It's a yep. huge benefit for security. I mean, they're not the same discipline and there's numerous ways that security can erode privacy when we think of surveillance. But the core parts of these theories should support each other. And it means that if you're trying to sell privacy inside an organization, using the security breach aspect can be also fundamental in thinking through the financial implications of investing in privacy. So you invest in privacy now, you have to rebuild and re-architect numerous parts of your data ecosystem so that it can do that. But your insurance, your liability insurance is going to go mm -hmm. down, your infosec risk goes down. And this, these are real you know, business decisions that have to be made from the risk department or from somebody aware of risk in the leadership. But this is a, a fundamental way. And so back to deletion is like deletion at scale is hard. It's hard even if you have proper lineage to make sure. And what yet isn't clear is does deletion also talk about machine learning systems? Well, that's actually what I wanted to ask you next, in particular, that even if you delete data, I did want to talk about privacy aware, ML and data science, generative AI, all of these things. You and I have talked a bunch several years ago, not recently, about extraction attacks, right? So the idea mm -hmm. that you can delete data, but if you have a model that was trained on it, in in some cases, you can actually get out the training data from yeah. that particular. Ask so G do you untrain ask, models? Ask, ask GPT who you are. I'm like pretty who? certain you're probably in there. Who is I, you? I, I thought you said ask it who, like, who you say are. who. So I, it knows who, who I am. It repeats my website Ghana? back to me. Do you say who am I or do you say who's Catherine Jamal? Who is Catherine Jamal? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah, yeah. No, I want, yeah, I'm going to say but like, who am I? Or, or also when you think about, I mean, this is the same thing with Mid Journey, right? It's called Mid Journey, I think. And like yeah. artists. Right. Like, so we start to get into also intellectual property rights and who owns your personhood, who owns your voice, who owns your content and so forth. For journalists, this is also a huge thing, right? Like, because if something can write in their style, what does it mean to have their style? I'm, right. So we I'm can sorry, get I got into distracted. I just looked yeah. up myself on chat GPT. <laughs> it's got all types of things wrong. It, Hugo Van Anderson is a well-known data scientist and educator. I, I, I've always referred to myself as C-grade. I'm, I'm aspiring to be the Steve Buscemi of data science. That's my goal in life, or Tim Roth. But he's known for blah, blah, blah. He has a background in physics, wrong, and holds a PhD in computational biology, wrong, from the University of Cambridge, wrong. So, But this is great. It thinks I'm Cambridge educated. So <laughs> that's... um. That's, that's great. Sometimes so, it'll repeat, but, like depending on 
because obviously we can think about the data sources and so forth. Sometimes it can repeat exact content from individuals. And when we think about, so I recently was at an EU privacy forum that was held by two, two of the main regulatory agencies in Europe, the Data Protection Regulatory Agency and the Cybersecurity mm-hmm. Agency. And I had a chance to be there. And there was a lot of really cool research on deletion of machine learning models. So how do we, are there ways for us to prune models to remove data? Are there, like, should we just retrain? Or should we think through ways to actually remove parts of the training data directly from a model? And if so, can, can we guarantee that in any sense? Or should we train with differential privacy instead? And so I think there's a non-trivial amount of researchers already working on this problem. I'm happy to share some of the, some of the work that was presented at the EU Privacy Forum as links. Or you can just go to, I think, privacyforum.eu was the website. So you can look at some of the researchers who presented their work. But this is a huge problem. I think the, so far regulatory agencies haven't gone after machine learning systems for deletion requests. But I think when we think about this generative AI space, the fact that we can reproduce somebody's face or work or biographies, imagined biographies, we get a lot closer to the realm where for some people might not want their name in the chat GPT system. Absolutely. And then it's like, how do we actually guarantee this? So I've actually filed a deletion request for my data in chat GPT. I have yet to hear from OpenAI this several months ago. So I've been getting some legal support on how to pursue my request over time. Fantastic. And so if you want to stay tuned, I have a, I have a newsletter called Probably Private. And I'll definitely be reporting there my right. adventures in deletion of data from generative AI. I do think, I mean, we're talking around, you know, privacy with respect to ML, AI, large language models. I think part of the logic and calculus behind these models is something that we saw as in tech early, really earlier, but in these forms as early as Google with search and, and street view, I suppose, Having creating a lot of value, of course, but having the presumption that data out there that can be collected is theirs for the taking and to create create products from and to to monetize, right? And there are very strong, compelling arguments that, you know, well, firstly, a lot of the time it may not be legal, but even when it is legal, that it's not necessarily legitimate, that it doesn't have the consent of or informed consent of anywhere near the number of stakeholders you would want it to. And we all, in all honesty, don't know, you know trade secrets, right? But ChatGPT is, is is trained on and what they've scraped from the World Wide Web in order in order to, to get it, right? And or data sets that were purchased, right, or acquired via other means, which is, I, I would think, likely, given the amount of financial and commercial interest and investment in the topic, and who is involved in those data sets, right? So like none of that will probably ever become known unless there's like somebody that actively whistleblows and says like, here's the data that came and and here's why. So if you work mm. in open AI, please feel inspired. But I think like from a privacy risk point of view, and this is where I see a lot of the conversation from the machine learning community quite divided, but also like I think when I get pushback of talking about privacy risk from the machine learning community, it's like, well, the data is public anyways, and particularly the scraped data and so forth. And yes, indeed, that is true. 
But what was the privacy risk understanding of an individual posting a reply that's 40 replies deep in Twitter or in a comment section or on a service like Reddit? And when we start to think about how people talk to each other, how people represent themselves Mm. in a physical world, it's privacy is really obvious. I'll pull you aside and I'll I'll say, hey, can we can we have a conversation in another quieter room or something like this? And and you'll probably presume, okay, this is this information is sensitive and I might not even need to tell you. Please don't share this with others. Please don't repeat this. I might also like use physical or cultural or social clues to tell you what's sensitive and what's not, right? Mm. And none of this translates well into online experiences. So it's very difficult. There's a section and a reference, but Privacy and Contextual Integrity, I think, is the book from Helen Nissenbaum that talks about the fact that when we take the physical information from the physical world or personal information from a physical world and we embed it into digital systems, technology systems, online systems, people often don't really understand what context they're operating in. And they may... They may say personal things in an online public context, quote unquote, that they they wouldn't share if they were shouting it from a rooftop, right? And so when we think of how we scrape data and use it for machine learning, yes, you can make an argument, it's public. Yes, it's posted on the internet. Yes. But what I think we can't actually presume is that people understood that that would then be scraped and used to train a model. And I think that's still vastly misunderstood in the public realm. And I think people cannot, we don't build interfaces that allow people a lot of choice to either participate in public forums online, but to do so privately or not to, right? So we tend to offer people either it's all public or it's not. And Mm. I think that because we don't offer people more granularity there, we also put them at a huge privacy risk that they that they are not responsible for. Just to be clear, I, I hate this. Like, well, then they shouldn't have posted on Facebook. It's like, guess what? If they wanted to f- post on Facebook, Facebook should have offered them a safe way to do so. Like, yep. it's, let's not blame the the data victim, so to speak. Let's think yeah. about the responsibility as technologists. Yeah, and there's also a question around monopolies that form and oligopolies as, as well. If there are certain communities that you can really only interact with on Facebook or the waning but also very serious monopoly of Google, right, in terms of how many people use you, you search. And the fact that, you know, there are arguments that, you know, they scraped a lot of data in order to develop their uh, algorithm, but that if somebody searches, you know, for your product, a lot of the time you'll have to buy an ad to engage in competitive bidding against your competitors because they're doing a navigational search. Someone's trying to find your product, right? But your competitors are allowed to bid against that. So there are arguments around, you know, whether these are public utilities as well. There are all types of kind of nuance concerns that we really need to think about more robustly. We should wrap up. This is too much fun though. I'm, I am interested in, for people who want to get started, of course, definitely check out your book, but what type of, I mean, we've got technical audience, people who write code, what type of tools are there currently? Most of them open source, are there proprietary tools, or what would you recommend for people to get started thinking about data privacy? So I definitely always recommend open source. I'm a big supporter and proponent of open source. The book exclusively uses open source systems. 
for mm-hmm. most of it, I think there's one example from HashiCorp format preserving encryption, just as an example. But the rest of the book is all open source. You can check out the notebooks. You can see all the libraries there. The reason why I prefer open source is because I believe that we should have publicly auditable systems for implementing data privacy and data security concepts that I think that we need. It's kind of like the peer review of technology. We need that. We probably should fund more actual peer review of open source. That's an entire other category of of concerns. But I think that one of my goals in thinking through data privacy is to also make make these processes transparent, make them inspectable, and make them accountable. And for that reason, I I strongly believe in open source. The repo has all the libraries used from the book if you want to just take a look first. And I will be... So I have a little YouTube series going myself, which I launched the first episode of about a week ago on privacy engineering. So what is privacy engineering? How do you get started? And I'm starting to line up the next series, which will be on open source privacy enhancing technologies. So if you want to subscribe to the newsletter or it's probably private also on YouTube, I will be reviewing some of my favorite libraries from the book, but then I'm also going to reach beyond that and look at a few other cool homomorphic encryption libraries that I didn't have a chance to to display for the book, talking with a few contributors to open source in the Google cryptosphere, so a cryptography at Google. And if you have an open source privacy library I should look at, please send it to me and and let me know. So so definitely stay tuned for more recommendations there. And there's a lot of startups in the space. I don't want to say that those that have proprietary technology haven't properly implemented it. I just have some very strong opinions about open source, so I'll be highlighting those first. But there's also plenty of proprietary systems, also now a lot of cloud-native systems that are starting to implement some of these technologies and make them more widely available. So I also think you have to make a decision that's good for you and your organization. Fantastic. And so if people want to, you know, follow you or hear updates from you, we'll include all your links in the show notes, but KJAM, KJAM on Twitter, Catherine Jamal on LinkedIn, we'll link to your YouTube channel. And any final words of wisdom or a call to action, if, if people want to get more, more into it, besides, of course, reading your book, that's the call to action I'll say. But if people want to get more, more involved in thinking about privacy, what would you encourage them to do? I guess what I would say first and foremost is privacy is definitely a team sport. It is not an individual sport. And so there's probably people at your work who are responsible for privacy. And what I would encourage you to do is set up, set up a chat with them. Go sit with your privacy legal team. Go sit with somebody on the governance board. Sit with somebody who has to write infosec policies and start talking and learning from the experts in your organization who are already there, who, by the way, are usually so happy somebody wants to talk about privacy or security, Mm. like usually absolutely delighted. These folks are often like way overburdened with work. So make sure you do a little bit of research, read through their policies, come with questions or come, you know, be explicit with them what you what you want to learn. But starting also a learning community in your data community on let's think through data privacy and security and data science can be another way to create a team engagement. But the best ideas come from working multidisciplinary and also learning together. So 
there was a book club at ThoughtWorks for reading through some early copies of the book. And I thought the conversations there were quite fun. And if you have folks that would like to read the book, I would say read it together and discuss like, is this actually applied for our organization? How will we even do this? There's a few ideas for workshops you can run in the book, just shared as little things that might inspire you to to think through privacy technology at your organization. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again, Catherine, for your time and generosity and expertise. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.